I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Club. We're the podcast that reads celebrity memoirs so you don't have to. And do we ask anything in return? We ask that if you hate what we're doing, you keep it to yourself. And do we add some of our own opinions? Damn right we do. And are our opinions honestly probably right? If there's ever been anyone more correct than us, point me in that direction. (laughs) Step forward. We would love to meet you and greet you. We do this podcast for the love of the game and for the love of y'all squirmy worms. Wait, speaking of squirmy worms, I am going to be in Chicago doing shows this weekend, July 23rd. So if you guys are around and you want to come DM me, I'll send you the deets. And speaking of squirmy wormies, we've actually had a ton of you guys come and give us five star reviews. So thank you so much to the following five star reviewers. Thank you to Chronica 19, even better than the Chronic 2001. Thank you, DMMC Williams 1222. Okay, that's honestly, that was hard for me to say, but I adore you. Thank you, Emma Lux, gorgeous. Thank you, Circuit Math Reviewer. Did you re-review? I remember that name. Thank you to Corey Healy. Thank you to Court3121. I really feel like you guys are putting all these numbers in here to fuck with me. I love you, though. Thank you to Cam's Lemons 11345 Thank you to Danny B. Rack. Danny B. Having a Damn Fine Rack. <laughs> Thank you to Shy March 9 Oh, and that's it for this week. God, we love you guys so much. We love five-star reviews. They are my heroine. We're addicted, so keep that supply coming. I'm Ashley. Yeah? If you had a memoir, what would the name of your memoir be this week? Or what would the chapter be called? This week's chapter, it would be called... Okay, you guys know. I, I try to be really positive, but I've been a little bit in the pit. Your Jolie pits. <laughs> this week, though, was really fun. I have some like shows coming up. Things are exciting. Things are good. I was... Um, mentioned in the New York Times for like a random TikTok I did about Ashley Olsen. I was in a short like two years ago that was featured in the New Yorker and they wrote a little review about it that honestly I didn't see because I'm illiterate. But then when I did read it, they said nice things about me and I appreciated that. And so I really feel like it's one of those weeks that my instinct is to be like, brace yourself because the highs come with lows but instead I want to be like no actually just remember that you're having a really good week and the things that you work really hard for are starting to turn into something and so when things feel like nothing's happening remember that things have happened and you're working towards something I can't just keep wallowing and being like nothing good ever happens to Ashley like good things do happen to Ashley and I need to appreciate them instead of being like okay good thing happened now don't get too high on yourself no it's I can just be happy Oh my God, are you happy? It's possible. Claire, what would you call your memoir this week? Great week. Well, we're both having a great week. I'm happy for you. I mean, as a co-host, you know. Oh, and we were just in The Strategist. Yeah, so we got like right up after right up after right up. I'm excited that last week's drama is behind us. We're charging into the future. I've got a lot of things on the horizon I'm excited about. I am proud of my friend, Ashley. Um, I'm proud of my friend, Claire. Who's with Tab's heads will remember that she famously said on a Who's with Tab's episode, a sinking ship sinks all ships, (laughs) which has been our motto for quite some time. And it's nice to see that the actual original motto, the true motto is, you know, a rising tide rises all ships or all ships rise with a rising tide. And no one cares. Nobody knows because (laughs) we've never had it happen before, but it's like, Your success is my success. I can't wait to cash in on you. 
I got no qualms, baby. Yeah, I'm just excited for us. I'm excited for the things to come. I love this podcast so much. I feel like I tend to lead with anxiety and negativity. And I'm really just trying to put that behind me and lead with a healthy dose of realism, but also optimism. Nice. Nice. Well, great week's all abound. I guess we don't have anything funny to say. What if we become so happy we're not funny anymore? No, that will never happen. We'll always be funny. Well, we'll be our like catch fall in case we become too happy. In case we become too happy. Should we set a bear trap for ourselves? Uh, Emotional or literal. I'm open to anything. We could like each say the meanest thing we could think about each other into a little voice note. And then oh, like put them in escrow. Put them in escrow. And so when we really need to just nuke ourselves, (laughs) we can press the release button on those bitches. So I guess there's nothing left to do except talk about our memoirist this week. I want to start out this week. I know where you're going with this and I can't wait to hear it. Where do you think I'm going with this? Should we say it on the count of three? Two, three. The The title title of this book book is is the best best I've ever seen. seen. (laughs) Yes, I knew we were on the same page. Story telling by Tori Spelling. It is a tongue twister. It makes you think. It makes you laugh. It makes you dream. I like can't get over it. Every time I looked at this book, I had to take the book jacket off. I kept getting hung up. I literally just looked at your book and she did indeed take the book jacket off. Is that why, Ashley? Because you were too distracted by the pun. (laughs) I'm so hung up on how brilliant Tori Spelling and her publisher Tori Telling are. (laughs) Storytelling by Tori Spelling. I mean, it's it's so funny. What would ours be? I guess yours would be like. Hampshire. No, there's nothing. Maybe no one else could do this. Nobody else could pull off this brilliance. She is one of a kind. I'd be Pear Clarker, which could be something like Pear. There's something, Mm-mm. something with Pear. There's You're walking into a hole here. I know that there are people who have professions based on being a pair. You're a step away from a well, and I won't be able to fish you out. <laughs> I don't have the upper body strength, and we all know that. All right, I'll back away slowly. I think you should do it. Claire Parker does parkour. Parker parkour. That's what I would do. Oh my God. I would pull um, Matthew McConaughey and I would like make a running metaphor where like all the obstacles in my life were like literally buildings and yes, emotionally backflip away from them and stuff. I would call mine ham tails and all of mine. My running theme would be all my obstacles are cured meats. <laughs> I do think there is an opportunity there to be like, you're a ham because you're a comedian. Yeah. But you wouldn't go with that. You'd be like more prosciutto based. <laughs> it would be much more like charcuterie centric. <laughs> So what did you know about Tori Spelling before she started storytelling? Okay, well, first of all, I think I knew just the gist of it that she was, and this is going to be cruel, but unfortunately, I am nothing but a mirror to reflect the society I live in. Are you going to say that she's quite round-faced? I was going to say just ugly. Okay. I will say, having looked at her a lot on this book jacket, I don't think she's ugly anymore. I don't think she's ugly. I don't think she's like movie star beautiful. I think if they had let her be what she was meant to be, which is a character actress, because I often physically mix her up with the woman who plays the mom on The Good Place and the older sister in What I Like About You. I was going to say, no, no, that's that's Jenny Jenny Garth. Garth. You're thinking of Leslie Grossman, who plays the sister's best friend on What I Like About You. Yes. If they had let her just be a comedic side character, I think she could have really done a great job with that. Yes. I don't think she's so ugly she couldn't be on TV. I do think she was not a convincing leading lady. She was no Amanda Bynes. She's not like a Margot Robbie. Like in this day and age to be a leading lady, you've really got to have your face chiseled into bits. It's tough stuff. And I I, actually my heart goes out to her because I had always thought of her as ugly. And when I took a closer look, I would just go, oh, 
She's just average. I also knew that she was obviously the daughter of this extremely wealthy person and had been like placed on 90210. I don't think I ever thought deeply about her, but if I had been forced to, I think I could have come up with that she had a bad relationship with her husband, Dean McShermitt. McDermott. Whatever. (laughs) What is wrong with me in names? I literally don't know. And then second of all, I vaguely can recall candy spelling space in the way that like you know in the lion king the dead dad shows up in the clouds yeah for some reason that's my image of candy spelling it's like a memorial in the sky she's almost a parody i think of what you would assume a rich old woman would look like ashley yeah what stories had you told about tori to yourself i would say when i thought to myself let's do some storytelling and talk about tori spelling all i would really know is that she was famous Absolutely. I knew she was on 90210 and I knew her dad's name quite well because I was addicted to the TV show Charmed. Did he produce that? Yes. God, that man can only do hits. He's incredible. Okay. And then here's the other thing. So I actually did some research before this episode. Cheater. I called my dad. (laughs) That was the research that I did. My reason for this is you and I are obviously gossip hounds. Junkies. Addicts. Adorers. We adore good gossip. We, Whenever someone presents us with good gossip, we say, well, that is beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for telling me. Tori Spelling was famous just before our era of who top celebrities were. And in her book, she talks a lot about paparazzi and being very famous and not being able to get out from under her name. We'll get into that more later, but not just because of her dad. She talks about auditioning for roles where they were like, honestly, you did great, but I just can't get over the fact that you're Tori Spelling. Basically that she was like too famous for smaller roles. So I called my dad and I was like, how famous was Tori Spelling on a scale of one to 10? He didn't really understand that question. So according to Jim, which is a TV show I'm trying to trademark. (laughs) I want to do a show about me growing up because the thing about my dad is he was very easygoing, but he had seven simple rules for dating his teenage daughter. (laughs) And I think a show told through that perspective could be genius. I really think that's a good idea. So I asked my dad, I said, okay, on a scale, A list, B list, D list, Z list. Where was Tori Spelling? He said she was a C plus B minus. I do think in the 2000s with tabloid gossip culture, there was this splintering of a celebrity poll. Like a Julia Roberts is an A plus list celebrity. True? True. I don't know what she gets in the tabloids. Obviously, if you have good Julia Roberts gossip, they crave that shit. But she is not the bread and butter currently of a tabloid. Right. I would not say that Bachelor people are top-notch celebrities they're like deeds z-list but they are on covers of tabloids a lot because i asked specifically i said was she the kind of person that you couldn't walk into a grocery store without seeing her face on a magazine or like in what way do you feel Mm -hmm. that she and i i asked the question i'm a good reporter i'm sorry i didn't mean to doubt you (laughs) i do think she was a c plus b minus list celebrity but i do think she was a regular tabloid tabloid fodder. fodder. Okay, yeah. I think it's valid to say she is very fair to the press in this. She goes out of her way a few times to be like, and I'm hugely fucked up and I didn't know that this would be used against me, but they were just doing their job. So I do think she has a deeply reciprocal relationship with the tabloids where her family gossip will set headlines because they are inherently interesting because they're so rich. And that story of like the poor little rich girl is great headline making. I do think she didn't need to live this life. If she didn't want it, she could get away from it. Yes. So, Tori, 
I want to start by getting into the Tori Spelling prologue because she does set us up nicely with two things, a recurring theme and then what this book is. This is essentially exactly what you want from a celebrity memoir. It is a setting straight of the record. She's like, the tabloids have said everything from A to Z about me and here I am giving my story for the first time. Like, here's how it went down in my perspective. She goes, some of what you may have read about me is accurate. My father did hire a snow machine for Christmas. Some false. I didn't live in that enormous house until I was 17. And some exaggerated. I wasn't, quote, disinherited. She was kind of disinherited. Well, it's just funny because she's like, some things are true. Some things are mostly true. And then other things, we do have that big house, but I didn't live there until I was 17. So I would still say true. (laughs) Okay. Three true examples of things the media has said about her. Constantly mentions that everyone thought she grew up in this manner, the largest single family home in California. And she did not move there till she was 17. They did, though, buy the house when they were 12. They bought Bing Crosby's old house, leveled it, and then spent the next five years in their 10,000-square-foot home while they were building the largest single-family residence in California, a 135-room manor called the manor. What would you call your 130-room largest single-family residence in California? The Mall of America. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. And then I'd have every store be like a mall themed store. We'd have like an Annie Ann's. We'd have a Claire's. That'd be my bedroom. Of course. We'd have like a Hot Topic. Oh, I want to sleep in Hot Topic. Well, that's where you go to have a discussion. Oh. <laughs> that's kind of more of a, a thinking room. A parlor. Yeah. And then, you, you know what I mean? What other stores are there? There'd be a wet seal. That's where we'd keep the aquarium. <laughs> that's nice. What would you call your 135 I don't know anything that good. The second thing I want to bring up that she talks about in this prologue, which is very important, is her relationship to her mother and her relationship to her face. When she was 12, she asks her mom if she's pretty. And her mom says, you will be when we get your nose fixed. Her mom then denied ever saying that. But I do think it sets up the dynamic between her and her mother. It does paint a really good picture. We start this book and I liked her when we started. I said to Ashley, the thing about all celebrity memoirs is it's like watching someone get drunker and drunker throughout the night. People start off on point and then the secrets that they have, the true feelings they have about themselves and how hard they've had it in life just start seeping out. So she starts and is like, here's the part of my book where I'm supposed to say, sure, my family had lots of money, but I had a normal childhood just like everyone else. Yeah, I could say that, but I'd be lying. My childhood was weird. No better or worse than anyone else's child, but definitely different. And she really opens up being like, here's how absurd my rich childhood was. I get it. Yes. So something that comes out about Tori is she really thinks of herself as funny. And so she tries to be self-deprecating up top by being like, here are these crazy things my parents did. One of the stories is like her elaborate birthday parties growing up. She would have these over-the-top birthday parties at one point. Her parents had an X on the ground and had a helicopter like fly in and drop drone style her birthday present that year. And it turned out to get a helicopter to fly that low in a residential property. The family assistant had to go and get like a special permit. So everything was over the top. Her sixth grade graduation party, they got the USC whole marching band to come and play pomp and circumstance. Yeah. And the present was, of course, a Madame Alexander collectible doll. It was always a Madame Alexander doll that was, I guess, delivered to her in a different extravagant way every year and this is the metaphor of poor Tori Spelling's childhood is that no matter how extravagant and expensive it was it was never really what she wanted it was always what her parents wanted so apparently her mom was obsessed with these Madame Alexander dolls which are like American girl dolls but collectibles I had never heard of them had you heard of them I have heard of it only in the context of like rich people complaining about being rich being like we had these dolls that you couldn't even touch that's the theme of Tori's life like sure I had everything except for what I wanted. The other thing that comes across is she's super protected. They never flew. Her dad had a horrible fear of flying because when he was in the Air Force was supposed to be on a flight that crashed and no one survived. 
And he was taken off the flight because he had the flu. The authorities had already gone to his parents and been like, I'm sorry, he was on that flight. And then when he showed up at his parents' house, they like wept and fell to the ground and were like, no one can ever fly again. A ghost can't fly. (laughs) But the thing about her being so protected is she was never allowed to go to summer camp. She was never allowed to have sleepovers. One time, the only time they went to Europe when she was a kid, they drove all the way to the East Coast and then took the Queen Elizabeth II to Europe. Travis Barker style. Yeah. During that time on the ship, she was able to like play with other kids and it was the only time in her life she ever got to go to summer camp she was so protected that she wasn't allowed to have sleepovers until she moved out of the house she really describes it as kind of a gilded cage sitch and then my favorite crazy story is she believed in santa claus and the easter bunny until she was 12 years old because they had santa and the easter bunny come visit them every year and so she was like of course santa's real i see him he comes to my home but the craziest part about this story is a cousin slept over one night and told her that there was no Santa when she told her parents they decided my cousin was a bad influence on me and I never saw her again. Ashley. Yeah. It is not clear in the book. Do you think that was a literal biological cousin? I think cousin has to be like maybe one of her dad's co-workers' kid or something like that. 12 years old is really old to believe in Santa Claus. I've told you guys on this podcast how I believed in Santa Claus against all odds, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm Jewish. No one, no authority figure literally ever told me to believe in Santa Claus, but the media got to me. <laughs> she was also primarily raised by not her parents. They had a full-time nanny named Nanny. Well, she actually found out much later in life that her name wasn't Nanny, but she called her Nanny. Her name was Margaret. And she was so deeply attached to Nanny and she talks about it as this like feud between Nanny and her mom. And it's like, I don't know, man, that's literally just how it works. Like if you wanted to spend time with your kid, they'd like you better. So she says she got the acting bug when she was five years old. And she very proudly says, I didn't get my big break from my dad. Actually, she got it from her mom's celebrity hairdresser who did a segment on a TV show about styling celebrity children's hair. And it's very funny because she does make a point to be like, see, not everything was handed to me by my dad. Not everything is nepotism. And it is like celebrity children. Why do you think you qualify to be a celebrity child? (laughs) This is where she says, dad, I want to be an actress. And he lets her be. (laughs) And I just, she's so funny because she makes a big point about being like, look, of course he gave me opportunities, but the desire to be an actress, that came from within. When I was five years old, all I wanted to be was an actress or a veterinarian or a manicurist. And it's like, yeah, you and every child. So she wants to become an actress. Her dad starts giving her little bit parts on TV shows. He's running about like 30 TV shows at this point. And in all of them, she has to play the little girl who says, hi, uncle, whatever. They just find a role for a little girl. They give her one or two lines. She takes it very seriously. She says she was very professional the whole time she said she was so professional she would always get to set on time always be low-key in the hair and makeup trailer she was always doing her best to not show up as the boss's daughter but she would memorize not only her lines but every line in the whole script and so then when someone else didn't remember their lines she would like say it for them and William Shatner flipped out and was like we have script coordinators for that to his point I do feel like if you were like having kind of an off day and then some little girl who's the boss's daughter who just walked on for this role is like I know your lines I'd be like bitch I'll kill you so she decides she wants to be an actress she gets her own acting coach separately a private acting coach he says you're so bad at acting you should quit (laughs) she's like if I ever win an award I'm gonna thank him first because he inspired me to keep going because I wanted to prove him wrong and I'm like and yet you still have not (laughs) good luck little lady but here's where it gets interesting here's where the narrative starts at this time, in I guess third or fourth grade, she's in a school play. She gets cast as the lead two years in a row. When she's cast as the lead in fourth grade, all of the parents mutiny. They come in and they complain that she's getting favored treatment because she's Aaron Spelling's daughter. This was back in the day before schools did everything they could to cater to every child. So 
what they did is they just canceled the play. Every other class got a school play except for her class. And here's what she says about this. I knew I'd won the role fair and square, but the parents made enough of a stink that the school just gave up. So much for believing myself. So much for achieving something independent of my father. The irony was that while everyone thought my family was inflating my success, in fact, it was hindering me. Little did I know it then, but this pattern would show up over and over again in my life. I achieve something. People think it's all because of my father. And ultimately, I come away with nothing. Back at square one. So this is where I go, Tori, 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 Tori. The little bit of goodwill you built up at the beginning of this episode where you were like, I know I'm different. I'm not going to ever sit here and complain because I know that I've had it so easy. You made it. This is page 32. She made it to page 32 before she was like, actually, being a Kardashian makes it harder to be a model. Actually, mm-hmm. being a spelling makes it hard to succeed. I feel like she really has a hard time with the fact that her name might not be the only thing holding her back. And she has a really hard time acknowledging that her name is the one thing that has in fact gotten her to where she was at all there are so many nepotism babies who I will go to bat for because they have so far outgrown their name mm-hmm. um Angelina Jolie I mean Gwyneth Paltrow Gwyneth Paltrow Zoe Kravitz oh Zoe Kravitz is a phenomenal example she also talks about how her parents again were so overbearing that they like made every decision for her her mom was obsessed with choosing her life and she says she learned later on when she's decorating an apartment if, it, if it's her mom's wallet it's her mom's decision and I will say that isn't a spelling thing. That's a thing. If my mom takes me shopping now at the 30 ripe years of age, it's her choice what to buy. Yeah. You know, Tori's expectation of what they would then pay for was like everything. She goes, I didn't choose my Halloween costumes. I got my mother's favorite dolls, birthday presents. I drove the car my parents thought looked best on me. I want to talk about this car. (laughs) Please. There is this like enormous theme throughout the book. So much so that it has a name. It's called Gold Beamer Syndrome. And that is because she wanted this red rabbit convertible and her parents wanted to get her a gold beamer for her 16th birthday. And guess who won? Poor Tori had to drive around in a gold beamer. And she's like, all my parents care about is impressing their friends and showing off their money. And I get that. It sucks to be like a show pony. But also at one point she says, my mom wanted me to have the car that matched my hair. She does a very good job being self-deprecating and like very clearly qualifying it and saying, I'm not going to sit here and complain that my parents got me this fancy car. I am just trying to explain to you what it was like to grow up as me as somebody who felt that they had no choice in their own life. Yes. And she does explain that it led her to become this deeply non-confrontational person that had a lot of negative ramifications on relationships throughout the rest of her life, which I do agree with. I think Mm -hmm. that if you're in this situation where your opinion is literally never ever validated or even heard eventually you just give up trying to have one and she even says later in choosing scripts she's like I was just so indecisive that whenever anyone expressed a significant opinion towards what I should or shouldn't do I would just go with that yeah she kind of has no sense of self I want to talk about her relationship with her dad versus her mom so just to get you guys on the inside of what's happening here I believe when her parents were married her mom was like 25 26 and her dad was like almost 50. So I think he was like 51 when Tori was born and her mom was like 28. That's the dynamic here. The hot young blonde wife named Candy, the very successful TV producer named Aaron, the little girl who was the apple of his eye. In this chapter, she goes into these descriptions of the time she spent with her dad and how much she loved that and how much she was daddy's little girl and daddy was the king and mommy was the villain and how she really reveled in the fact that from the time she was young, she would give her dad idea on casting. Like if she saw a kid in a show that she liked, she would write their name down and give it to their dad and their dad would cast that kid. She would like read scripts and give feedback. And whenever the mom tried to pipe up, 
that it was like, stick to what you know. And I think that that did develop a rivalry between the mother and the daughter. And then I think especially the fact that Tori like so blatantly favored the nanny over the mom. I think that she just felt without a role in Tori's life almost and just became deeply withholding when really all Tori wanted was her approval so she's acting as she's getting older she's getting bigger lines she's getting more little bit parts on all of her dad's after a few years of acting school she got her own agent and manager and she made it a point to try not to be in her dad's things she wanted to expand her resume beyond that but then she finds a script and when she's 16 years old, she auditions for a TV show called Class of Beverly Hills. She reads this script. She finds it in her dad's office and is like, I can't not audition for this. I'm obsessed with it. She tells her agent that she needs an audition for this show. She's obsessed with it. She like needs to get in there. But she doesn't want this to be another role that her dad hands her. So she says to give them a fake name. She wants to go in with a false name and audition anonymously. To her credit, she does heavily acknowledge that there's no actual way they didn't know who she was. The name she picks is Tori Mitchell, which is a name that she picked from a character at one of her dad's TV movies. Yeah. Even there, she couldn't stray too far. Her creativity knows very specific paternal bounds. And then on top of that, she's like, my dad thought it was such a cute story that I wanted to audition under my own name that he told everybody. The story got leaked to the magazines. The show turns into Beverly Hills 90210. She does land a role. She lands a role of Donna Martin, who is initially a very minor character and her her analysis is that her dad probably was like, throw the bitch a bone, give her a little role with like two lines per episode. She'll feel so satisfied being a recurring actor on a show. And she walks in being like, this was my opportunity. I had everything to prove. So let's get into 90210. I had always known of 90210. For those of you of the younger generation, this is actually the show that birthed 90210. <laughs> Brian Austin Green, I was going to say. Oh, I thought you were going to say the show that birthed the spinoff that was on the CW years later. Brian Austin Green was married to Megan Fox and, in my opinion, is evil, but I have no Me proof. <laughs> anyway, so she's on 90210. She's really like working herself into the show. When she doesn't have lines, she's serving face. They realize that she's kind of funny. They decide to turn her character into the comedic relief of this teen drama. And she is able to build herself from this walk-on two lines per episode role to a main cast member, which is quite exciting for her. And she really, really hypes up the fact that that opportunity happened because she built it. She's like, listen, I studied my character. I figured it out. I figured out a way to always have a funny face in the background. And they noticed my funny faces and they said, are you funny? And she said, I am. So Donna Martin became famously the Virgin of America. Yeah. Because her dad did not want her to be sexualized on the show. So they kept that character virgin until the character was 24. Jesus. Anyway, and she also talks about how she wasn't getting paid what the other cast members were getting paid because her dad was trying so hard to not show special treatment that she got bad treatment. The show ended up lasting 10 years. Mm -hmm. By the end, she was a main character. And the show was huge. I mean, it was like the it teen drama of the day. So being on 90210 was her first taste of true negative press. So when she got booked on that show, it was just like a whirlwind of headlines being like nepotism, baby, Tori Spelling can't act. Tori Spelling is ugly and sucks. She says so few lines. And yet in response to my delivery of them, the press had a field day. Maybe I should have known they'd target me because of my father, but it was the first real taste of negative press, and it was brutal. I couldn't act, and I was unattractive to boot. At first, I was hurt, then a little annoyed. I mean, hi, Brenda. How could you possibly hear me say two words and conclude that I was a lousy actress? Seriously, anyone who could speak could do the lines I was doing. They were against me because of who I was. They hated me at hello. My dad advised me to stop reading the tabloids, but it was easier said than done. 
I was young and the criticism felt very public, but it also motivated me. I actually think the tabloids did her an enormous disservice here because if they had waited to criticize her until there was like legitimate acting to criticize, I think she would have taken it to heart. But I think she was able to be like, listen, I had two lines. If you're looking at that and saying that I'm a bad actress, it's because you hate me and you're out to get me. If they had just waited till they could prove that she was a bad actress, I think it would have meant a lot more. <laughs> she does not think she's a bad actress. I know. She thinks she's a very good actress. I have never seen her in anything, but I have a good feeling she's a bad actress. <laughs> so 90210 was basically her college experience and beyond. It was her college experience. It was her post-college experience. This was her social life, her work life, everything from 16 to 26. So everyone was friends. Everyone was going out. Everyone was boning each other. Pretty much everybody had fucked everybody. So her and Brian Austin Green had this on and again, off again relationship the whole time where he was basically very mean to her and then he would bully her all the time. And then one time at Disney World, he goes, do you ever think maybe I bully you because I love you? And she was like, I love you too. And she's like, sometimes we'd be hooking up and basically he treated her like shit. It was very much spend the weekend together, tell her how much you like her. And then the next week be like, hey, can I get your friend's number? I guess what I would call it is very much... I want you as my second choice at all times. I need you to be available to be my second choice. So like, I don't want to date you, but I don't want you to date anyone else. And the other drama was Shannon Doherty. I don't know if anybody here was raised on Charmed. (laughs) My God, was I. But Shannon Doherty always had this reputation for being a a gigantic bitch. And I always wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt because, you know, the media is not kind to women. They love to call women bitchy. And so I was like, well, how bad could she have really been? Maybe she was just a professional. According to her spelling, an absolute see you next Tuesday. They had to like as a cast band together to have her fired. Her indiscretions basically included being mean to everybody all the time, showing up up to four to five hours late, making up blatant lies as to why she was late, holding everybody up. Very early on, she took Tori under her wing and she was a couple years older than Tori and a lot more famous. So Tori was very excited. And she said she was straight up be like, today we're not friends with Jenny. About Jenny Garth, who was one of the other stars. And Tori would be like, okay, thanks. And then she'd be like, today we can have lunch with Jenny. And it was very on again, off again. She said one time she just fired this background actress just because she was pretty. Pretty and brunette. Pretty and brunette, which is Shannon's thing. Yes. So she also says that Shannon would use Tori's name and friendship to get what she wants in like wardrobe. If she hated a dress that they put her character in, she would be like, Tori said this dress sucks and you don't want her to tell her dad that the outfits are bad. Yeah. And Tori's like, I had no idea she was doing this. I would never have gone to wardrobe and complained about anything. I do believe that Tori is very non-confrontational and very sweet because she's super self-conscious of being seen as a bitch. Another thing I want to point out that's really interesting is Tori talks about how loyal her dad was to cast crew, literally everyone he works with. So now that I'm thinking about it, the fact that they had to band together to get Shannon fired from 90210 and then he hired her again for Charmed. My God, that's a loyal dude. (laughs) I mean, then they fired her again for being difficult. Really? On Charmed? Yeah. Why do you think that she died fucking a season and a half in? I actually did not get raised on charmed oh so that's how she spends 16 to 26 is getting super famous on 90210 she's tabloid fodder the tabloids are pretty vicious to her she's out she's young she's rich she moves out of her parents house what does she move into though an apartment her mom bought her and it very much just like everything else her mom decides i'm gonna buy you this apartment but we're gonna decorate it the way i want It's going to be in my name and you have to pay me rent. So before she moves into this apartment that her mom bought her she moves into her own apartment in the wilshire corridor which is like a fancy, ugly street in Los Angeles, like in the middle of it. Let's just talk about her boyfriend history really quick up until now. She 
got her first kiss when she was 14 or something from a 26 year old chef the family private chef Mm -hmm. she and him were having like a little makeout tryst she is obsessed with this she thinks it's the coolest thing ever and i uh you know alarm bells i have to say this was a story that i couldn't really get the gist of how she felt about it it seemed pretty positive she kind of thought it was funny and cool and then she's like i met him years later turns out he was a huge loser and i was like i could have guessed that Yeah, he was making out with a literal child. Then she dates this guy, Ryan, who is a nice little nice head, a sweetie pie. And he's just hot and sweet and is always hanging out with the family. And this is when she starts to get famous and she just is sick of it. She's like, I don't want to sit at home with my brother and my boyfriend. I want to go out and go clubbing with Shannon Doherty and enjoy my newfound fame. So she's always just kind of leaving him behind because she also doesn't want him tagging along. She's like, I'm young and I'm like becoming successful and so many people want to flirt with me and I don't want my boyfriend just sitting around in the corner watching me make out. <laughs> and so she cheats on him with Brian Austin Green and then ends the relationship. Then she starts dating this guy, Nick, who she moves in with after she moves out of her parents' house. And I think they have to move out because everybody hates Nick. Truly, her cast members on the show had to have an intervention with her where they sat her down and said, Nick is no longer welcome on set, and we also really hope you break up with him. He was not just going out every night and treating her awfully. I think he was physically abusive. He was verbally abusive. He would call her ugly and stupid. He spent all of her money. She was covering all of their bills for everything. He would take out the full maximum withdrawal every day to go gambling. He gambled away $25,000 in one night at one point. At one point, he made her buy them each a car and he got a Porsche. And then the next week, he totaled a Porsche. And then it turned out in the Porsche when he totaled it was a girl he had met at a club that he was bringing home. One time, he cheated on her and she found out. And as an apology, she bought him a Rolex. I feel really bad because I think to me, I didn't dislike Tori. And I think it was these stories about the relationship she put herself in or allowed herself to be in because she was clearly so beaten down by her family and her mom and the press and had absolutely no self-esteem. Yeah. Like, you don't buy a man a Rolex to apologize that he cheated on you. Yeah. I unless mean, you hate yourself so much that it's almost unfathomable. We've been in bad relationships. Not from the door. Not from the window could we see the depths of self-hatred that Tori Spelling has experienced. I mean, yeah, it is wild. She even says that the way that he talked to her was just, like, reflecting what the tabloids were saying. And I think that's, like, where she felt comfortable almost because I've been in that situation before where like when you believe something awful about yourself Mm -hmm. and then someone says something awful to you that is that exact thing you don't even view it as them abusing you you're like finally someone's honest with me telling me exactly how shitty I am thank god someone sees it yeah he really gets me he hates me (laughs) because it's just like relationship after relationship so then the next guy she dates I want to just mention really quick that Luke Perry fought him at the spelling family Christmas party. Of course, you know, and then on the side, whenever the relationship ends, she goes back to Brian Austin Green, who basically won't be seen with her in public. Yeah, she says that they hooked up on and off literally the entire time. And then even when they were filming the finale of Beverly Hills 90210, which was, I guess, wedding, she's like, I think my feelings are back. I think I love him. And Jenny Garth, to her credit, was like, it's the scene, I think. <laughs> and she says Brian Austin Green is the one person that she she hadn't seen since the day they wrapped Beverly Hills 90210. So then her next boyfriend is some guy, Vince, who was like a model turned actor. She dates him for two years. He is also very bad to her. And he wants her to like home cooking him dinner, being like the 1950s housewife. And yet she is also making all the money. And then also he is constantly cheating on her. Yeah. And then she is approached at a Christmas party by a 
man who claims to be a psychic, he comes to her and very urgently is like, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. She is stoned out of her fucking mind. She brings a friend with her into the room because she's like, I'm high as shit. And this guy is like obsessed with talking to me and I don't want to be in a room alone with him, which good instincts tour anyway and he basically is like I'm a psychic I'm here to give you a message you don't think enough of yourself you choose relationships that aren't worthy of you and like this is the key moment in time when you can change your path this is your opportunity to choose something different for yourself and then it turns out it's this man Terrence Trent Darby the Grammy award-winning musician now known as Samanda Maitreya and actually kind of known to be a psychic yeah I mean, you don't have to be a psychic to know that Tori Spelling was getting into bad relationships. Yeah, but... Luke Perry had also been telling her. (laughs) So she basically listens to this call and is like, I gotta turn my shit around. Also, the whole time that she'd been on 90210, she had become this queen of made-for-TV movies. She said she took the crown straight from Valerie Bertinelli's hair. It really is like this thing where she thinks that this is what has set her apart as a legitimate actor. She was in a movie called A Friend to Die For, which she shot on a break from 90210. And she said, in doing that single movie, I went overnight from being Aaron Spelling's overprivileged daughter to being an in-demand actress. And she said it was like one of the highest rated TV movies in years. And she just couldn't bat him away fast enough. She said she was doing three a year, two every summer and one every winter break. But then as 90210 started to wrap up, she wanted to obviously branch into bigger things and her agents and managers obviously advised her to shoot for the moon she'd done two indie films that were nominated for the sundance grand jury prize the first was half of yes and the second was trick and trick was the first time she said she got like good press people were all like oh my god she's actually pretty good in it and she was hoping to become an indie actress and later people would be like well whatever happened to that and she's like i don't know what happened to it She seems to have very little control over the roles she gets. Yeah. I will say I also think that she had bad agents and managers. I don't know. Maybe it's just the way she writes it. It does seem like her team botched it for her. But I do think that she would never verbalize what it is that she wanted. Because she's like, I don't know. My agent and manager, they liked me better as the girl next door. So they told me to keep me sweet and blonde. But I would have been happy to be funny and raunchy and over the top. But that's not how they liked me. And it's just like, okay. Well, maybe advocate for yourself. You are Aaron Spelling's daughter. I do think you could have used that a little bit to your advantage. Or even just, you were at this point an in-demand actress. You were coming hot off of one of the biggest TV shows of the day. So she really wants to be taken seriously. And one of the things she gets is a lead role in Scary Movie 2. And she is so freaking excited. And she spends an entire chapter talking about the process of making this movie. And how on the very first day, they ask her to improv. And so she improvs. And everybody's laughing. And they can't believe how funny she is. And so even though she had already gotten this big role, she was one of the leads, they kept expanding her role and making it bigger and bigger and asking her to come into every single scene and improv and see what she could come up with. And then there's a scene where she is supposed to show her big old tits. I don't like that. We forgot to tell the parrot story. I know. Should we tell the parrot story right now? Yeah. I have to read to you guys. So her and Nick had a pet parrot and Nick was mean to it. Abusive, she thinks. Because of that, the parrot became kind of evil. <laughs> she was like working long hours and she's like Nick would be screaming at his face and, and blowing cigarette smoke in her face. And so poor Charlie started to rebel. Out of her cage, she'd sneak up behind you very quietly, then lunge and bite your Achilles tendon. One time, she literally chased me and my friend Jenny down the hallway, squawking and flapping. We hid in the bathroom as she hurled herself at the door for 45 minutes. (laughs) Ah! And then one time, she went to kiss the bird, as she did every night, and the bird bit her nose off. (laughs) Almost bit her nose off. I'm sorry. I don't even care about the biting. That one to me isn't crazy. It's the hurling its body at the bathroom that I cannot get past i can't believe it survived that i can't believe how fucking 
resilient parrots are. There's just something so specifically like domestic violency about hurling your body at a door that because it hurts you so badly. Like I didn't know that that was a an animal behavior. I see that as distinctly human. Same. That's what makes us beautiful. Us and parrots. Anyway, now she's doing Scary Movie 2. She's in every scene. She's in it all the time. They want her to take her top off and let herself loose. And she had said when she signed on, I will not do nudity. And I guess there was a big fight between her agency and the studio. And it kept getting higher and higher. And they kept going back and forth. And then they were like, she can do a body dumple. But she was like, the audience isn't going to know. It's not me. I don't want to do it. And so she calls her dad and is like, what should I do? Her dad, of course, is at this point pretty old. This is the man who wouldn't let her character have sex on a TV show about horny teens. And he's like, listen, if I know the Weinstein brothers, you better do it. He says, if you don't do it, they'll cut you out of the movie for spite. And she goes, I held my own. I held my ground. The director's cut comes out. Everybody's like, you're so funny. You're in every scene. And then the final cut comes out. And... Basically, she has been cut out of the entire thing. She's now billed as a cameo. And she doesn't know for sure what happened, but she thinks what happened is because she didn't show her boobs. They cut her for spite. And here's what I want to say. Awful experience. Horrible experience. If that's what happened, I don't think I'm going to go out on a limb to say, fuck the Weinstein brothers. Am I right? I want to quote her. Yeah. She goes, after all that excitement when I'd seen the script, after all the compliments I'd received on the set, I'd even dare to hope that 90210 and being daddy's girl forever were in the past. What could I do? I wasn't about to sit around and mope. I had to focus on what was next. I was back at square one. She says about this experience, a pattern has emerged in my life. It goes something like this. Just when I've given up all hope in my career, in my love life, my hair, you choose, I get an amazing opportunity. This amazing opportunity gives me a new hope. I'm determined to make the most of it. I throw myself into it. I try really hard. My efforts seem to pay off. Looks like this will really lead to something. And then nothing. It all goes to pot. Like I told you about getting the lead part in the third grade play. Or when I was so excited to do my bit lines part on 90210 and got terrible press, even though I barely had any lines. And then she goes on to talk about the movie Trick and how that didn't really lead anywhere. And then she talks about the scary movie thing. And she's like, just like everything else, I was always back at square one. Here's the pattern I want to say that emerges against her. Her pattern is that every time she thinks she's going to get something, she gets screwed over. And then she names 90210, a TV show that she ended up becoming a main character in and lasted for 10 years and made her very famous. A TV show that she claims literally went off the air because after 10 years, she decided not to continue. She literally says the show was canceled because she quit. She still somehow uses that show, 90210, as an example of this pattern of her having things taken from her because she's Tori Spelling. And then she talks about the scary movie and she goes, just like everything else, because I was daddy's little girl, I couldn't have this one thing. And it's like, actually, I think if you had been allowed to not show your boobs in this movie, that would have been special treatment. What you didn't receive was special treatment for who you were. What you received was the Weinstein treatment, which was absolute disrespect towards women, which is the true experience. Yeah. And you're not back at square one. You had a cameo. And I mean, I guess it did badly, but in a major motion picture, a summer blockbuster. Totally. That's not square one. You got a part you didn't even think you'd get in the first place and you were still in the film. And then she goes on to like talk about after 90210, she's trying to do all these comedic pilots and she's talking about how awful pilot season is and she's just auditioning all the time. She talks about so many pilots that finally she would get something, then it wouldn't get picked up. What did we learn from Leah Remini's memoir? Like she was in fucking 30 failed pilots before she got King of Queens. That just is the nature of the biz, baby. Yeah, I mean, you're lucky to be getting the auditions, honestly. Yeah. And so she talks about this pilot where she didn't think she'd get it and then they keep like her and keep like her and finally at the last stage of approval, somebody goes, I don't know, I can't get past the fact that she's Tori Spelling. And then she goes, that's the story of my life. My name opens doors for me, but before I can cross the threshold, it slams the same doors right in my face. 
She then goes on to continue that story about how they later do call her back and let her audition and give her the pilot. And then the pilot just doesn't get picked up. And then she tells that story a couple times about times people are like, I don't know. It's Tori Spelling. And then she overcomes that initial trepidation and gets the role. But just none of these pilots go to series. And she goes, dutifully, I went back into the room to read yet another time to convince yet another doubter to give me yet another part on yet another pilot that it turned out would never make it to the air. All these examples of times her name stopped her is like actually her name gave them pause and then she got it anyway. Yeah. And she was only in the room in the first place because of her name. Yeah. So she goes on and she's on this journey to expand her brand. So she does a play. She says it was a dream role for a comedian. I want to point out that she calls herself a comedian. And it's like this play where it's like 11 vignettes of love. And it's written by this guy, Charlie. And he had written in with the woman who's originally the star in it. But she needed a break from the play. So Tori comes in and gets the role. And it actually gets very well received. Yeah. It gets very good reviews. But she's upset because it's all like, surprisingly, Tori Spelling is great. Like, we can't believe it. But Tori Spelling. And so she says these reviews don't count because they're all kind of backhanded. But they are all good reviews. So this writer, Charlie, eerily similarly named to her bird that attacked her. He is a very sweet man. And everyone seems to point out that he's not her usual type. He is a bookish writer and not a total hunk. She typically goes for a hunk. She also comments on the fact that she has never really been herself when dating. She says, I'd sense what personality he wanted me to have and transform myself into that. So I want to point out that she says all of this when she starts dating Charlie, but she also later as their relationship dissolves, not to spoil it, talks about she could never be herself with Charlie. So like in the building of their relationship, she's like acknowledging all of these things that she hasn't overcome before, but it doesn't feel like she's yet overcome them. No, I think that's what she's saying. Yeah. She's saying, Charlie, like all the other guys, I like learned this way of being a version of myself that I knew he would like. He was like religious. He was very Christian. Yeah. He was like not into fame. And I think he was very kind. And he came from a really sweet family. And that was a huge draw for her. She had never been around family that was like nice before. Drew Barrymore syndrome. Yeah. She had that guy, Terrence Trent Darby, come and be like, change your ways. And so she said, okay, I've been dating all these bad boys. I'm going to date a nice guy. And so she found this nice guy. I think she thought the fact that he wasn't her type was a good sign. I've done that before. And I do think she's so passive that the further she got, the more she was just like, she just continues on whatever, whatever path she's already on. So they move in together. I guess there's all these signs that they really aren't that compatible. She's social. She likes to go out with her friends. He's very like, we're going home at 10. She's raunchy. She likes to be funny. He gets very offended by the language she uses. Yeah, especially in public. He says, no lady of mine will speak like that in public. She's like, that was a red flag, I think. And it's like, damn right it was. (laughs) But nevertheless, she persisted. And they get married. Now, here comes the drama of all drama. Their wedding was an absolute hellscape. This really puts a rift in the relationship with Tori and her mom. Her mom really, I want to say takes the reins on the wedding, but only half takes the reins. She takes the reins in this like deeply pathological way where she must control everything, but then sometimes will just decide she's too overwhelmed and can't be bothered with things and just like let them fall off. And so then parts of the wedding just like don't get planned. To set the stage of her relationship with her mom, According to Tori, her and her mom were on the outs because it had just been a Thanksgiving. There had just been a party and Nanny, the nanny, I guess, was invited to all of the family parties and stuff. And it was right around her birthday and Tori wanted to celebrate Nanny. But of course, her mom was like, we're not going to celebrate the help at a party with my friends. It's just not done. She's always very worried about what her friends will think. And they go back and forth and they have a fight. 
I think Tori says fuck you to her mom on the phone. She shows up at the dinner and had secretly brought a little cake for Nanny. And so mm-hmm. she goes behind her mom's back and, and celebrates this woman anyway. Tensions between the two of them. A few weeks later, Charlie calls up the parents to ask for Tori's hand in marriage. And when he goes over, they basically think he's there to mend the fence. And they're like, the way Tori spoke, her mother was inappropriate. She can't do that. And Charlie's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm here to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage. And they're just like, we really actually would like to speak about the the way Tori spoke to the mother. And he's like, okay, so can I marry her? And they're basically like, whatever. Yeah. We don't care. (laughs) They're not unhappy. They're just deeply unenthused. And it doesn't even seem like it's about Charlie specifically. They just don't care for Tori. And yeah. so Tori wants an engagement party and she wants her mom to foot the bill. And here's the thing is she's like acknowledges that it is very nice for anyone's parents to foot anyone's bill. But to remind you guys, your parents are worth $500 million. It is kind of crazy to think that your $500 million parents wouldn't foot your engagement bill. Yeah. First, her mom says no. She goes, nobody's ever heard of an engagement party. And, her, and Tori's like, they exist. I'll show you. And so her mom finally is like, fine, but it has to be everything I want. And so Tori's like, no problem. You take the engagement party. We'll have the wedding of our dreams. So Charlie and Tori are obsessed with getting married at a vineyard. And so they're looking at vineyards all over California. And I guess her dad had recently had throat cancer and he had survived it. But her mom's like, look, he's too frail. He can't go to a vineyard. And so then they're like, OK, well, we'll find one in L.A. And so they find one in Malibu. And her mom's like, too far. He can't go. They had a house in Malibu that they still frequented. So she was like, what if you guys stayed in Malibu that night? And the mom was like, No. Ultimately books this Malibu vineyard and she's like, please, you don't have to get a hotel room. Just stay at the Malibu house. It's 10 minutes away. Yeah. And at this point, a man named Mark had entered the family's life. So this man, Mark, has entered their life. Mark was a good friend of her family's like 15 years earlier, but he had been thrown in jail for fraud and racketeering and they had stopped speaking to him. He gets out of jail and I guess he ran into Candy Spelling at a party and Candy's like, well, how could we have ever been mad at you? Who who hasn't? Who among us? Those who haven't racketeered, guess the first stone. <laughs> and so they become friends and somehow Mark like weasels his way into their lives and becomes everybody's go-to guy. He suddenly is like taking over the family and basically he goes with Tori and the mother to this vineyard and he goes, Tori, don't worry about it. I'm going to convince your mom that we can do it here. And sure enough, her mom says, fine, you can do it at Malibu. Yes. So they book it for July 4th, which is the only upcoming weekend available in like the next two years or something like that. They've sent out Save the Dates. Charlie's family, who is from the East Coast, all book their tickets. Everyone's prepping for this July 4th wedding. The plans are coming together quite slowly other than that. And then the mom just says, actually, the wedding has to be at the manor. And actually, it has to be July 3rd, not July 4th. And then the mom goes, he has to sign a prenup. And Charlie is very anti-prenup but he finally agrees and they go we will not send out the invitations until the prenup is signed so the the invitations had been sent out yet at this point only the save the dates had been sent out they were for july 4th at the vineyard and then they were like actually the wedding has to be at the manor actually it has to be july and the reason it has to be july 3rd is she says one my friends don't want to get stuck in traffic yeah and two because it's a holiday the valet parking will be much more expensive Yes. If it's on the fourth. So it has to be the third so that we can save money. Yes. $500 million. So then she says, well, a lot of Charlie's family has already booked tickets and is flying in on July 3rd for our July 4th wedding. So if we are to change the wedding to July 3rd, they're all going to have to pay to change their tickets and their family is not worth $500 million. And so the mom says, I'll pay for the flight change fees. And it turns out those flight changes end up costing thousands of dollars. The mom was like, I was only going to pay $50 a ticket. I can't believe a flight change costs more than $50. So Tori and Charlie end up having to foot the bill for these flight changes that cost them like 10 grand. And I just also want to point out that Mark was the one who had convinced 
the mother to have it at the vineyard. And he had said to Tori, look, I can convince your mother of anything. So Tori was like, fine. Mark is the one who then convinces Tori to have the party at the manor. Because he says, look, think about this carefully. She wants it at the manor. Think about how much you're going to get on other things if you give in on this. She won't cheap out at a party held at her own house. And she goes, it didn't occur to me later that he was probably feeding her the same line. I can convince Tori to do anything. So they agree. Yes. And then it's moved. Then the mom says, okay, we need a prenup signed and we cannot send out the invitations until we have a prenup signed. And they're disagreeing on everything up until this point. Charlie is so fed up with the mom at this point that he will not even come to any of these meetings. And the problem is, it's not that Charlie is even fighting the prenup. It's that they each have to get a lawyer and then the lawyers are taking so long. They're always on vacation and it's just taking forever. And the mom refuses to send out the invitations until the prenup signed. So they finally call the lawyers are like if you don't get the sign we're gonna go somewhere else so by the time they sent out the invitations the rsvp date had already been passed yeah it is three weeks before the wedding when they get these invitations out and she says that the majority of the list assumed that they just weren't actually invited because it's three weeks until the wedding and they hadn't even gotten an invitation also before the invitations went out Tori's mom went to Tori and said, actually, the list is too big. This wedding is going to be too expensive. You need to uninvite 50 people. 50 of the people who did receive Save the Dates were, in fact, uninvited. Or should have called them and said, you can no longer bring your husband or spouse or date. Yeah. And then it turned out that actually her mom had added 100 people of her own list. All of these celebrities. Ed McMahon was there. Yeah. Angelica Houston and her husband were one of the couples who came to the party. And she's like, I know for a fact we had seen them at a party that summer. And she had not said hello to us. But then there she was at my wedding. Yeah, she says she didn't even make the rounds at the wedding because she was like, it would be weird to introduce myself and be like, hi, I'm Tori. Thank you for coming to my wedding. So that's leading up to the wedding. Finally, then they get to the rehearsal dinner. And of course, more drama ensues. So they have the rehearsal run through at that manor. And then they go to this dinner afterwards. Yes. So at the run through, the mom shows up in a jogging suit. (laughs) And then after she sees what Tori is wearing, shows up at the rehearsal party in the exact same color. And on top of that, she was like, so I wanted to wear this dusty rose dress. And then I asked my mom if she had like long strands of diamonds, like yards of diamonds. And her mom goes, no, I have nothing like that. So Tori goes to some party city fake jewelry thing and gets fake versions. At the rehearsal dinner, her mom not only shows up in a dusty rose dress, but with her own very long diamonds by the yard that it turns out she did have. Yeah. The next day, the wedding happens. It is at the manor. It is kind of a circus it seems like she missed most of it you know there was two cocktail hours she wasn't there for either of it the first cocktail hour she was getting ready and then the second cocktail hour she was taking photos and stuff there was supposed to be this like bride and groom's moment so what they did is during the second cocktail hour they made tori and charlie go up to the suite and like they were supposed to be able to sort of like eat some hors d'oeuvres and look out upon their guests and like have a sort of just together moment. But while she had her like hair and makeup was getting primped and fixed and there was a photographer in there and he was like, actually, this lighting is fucking perfect. So it turned into kind of a photo shoot where they spent not a single second alone. And then they had to go back down for the reception. And then at the reception, I guess they like hung out with other people the whole time. She did that thing where they had their first dance and she felt like he was so offbeat that she actually called take two and made him start from scratch yes and then her mom had called in a surprise guest singer she flew some singer in from new york michael feinstein i could not recall that name if you asked me again right now what you just said (laughs) and even tori is like nobody knows who that is except for my mom's generation so all of her and her friends were like so impressed and she goes i don't know what it costs to 
fly somebody like this in, but it's probably like 100K. Yeah. So she had to uninvite 50 guests so that they could get Michael Feinstein in the door. Charlie's dad was a huge Michael Feinstein fan and went up to her and was like, oh, I'm such a fan. Thank you so much for doing this. And she said to him, if you love him so much, why don't you go listen to him? (laughs) I mean, she does sound like a fucking bitch. And I guess like the mom went up and did long speech about how much she loved Tori. And then the dad did some rambling speech where he goes, and I don't care what people always say. My dear wife does nothing wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But then, of course, beyond her bad relationship with her mom, was her bad relationship with the man she had literally married that day. He wanted to go home. And I guess he said something like, I don't want to be one of those cuspals who's like too drunk to fuck on their wedding night. And she was like, but I want to hang out with my friends. And so like her and her friends closed the party down and he had to like drag her home. And she was like, I don't want to go. Yeah. And then she said that she like took a long bath, put off having to bone her new husband. And it's just like, my God, dude, the other glaring problem aside from all of the non-compatible red flags that we've already seen is that Mayron, her best friend would always joke with her about like ways she could potentially flee her wedding should she want to yeah all of her friends up to this point have been like he's not right for you, you don't like him anyway she didn't like him and then there was one more bad moment where like the next day you know how they have the bridal brunch on the next day her mom had agreed to pay for that it was gonna be nine thousand dollars for burgers and hot dogs for 80 people which didn't sound like a lot of money to me mom comes down and decides she's refusing to pay it and so tori and charlie split it with his family So it's 4,500 each. Yeah. Her mom was also supposed to pay for the hotel that they had spent the weekend in getting ready and then their honeymoon suite and everything. And I guess she refuses to pay for that too. And that also came out to another $10,000. Obviously, emotionally, it would hurt if it was $20 and your mom had promised to do it. And then suddenly she comes up, throws a scene and goes, I would never do this for you. It sucks to be rejected like that by your parents, especially because she was really told by them that like money is love. Like in the earlier chapter, she talks about how her dad would always say, how much your mom spends on you. That's how much she loves you. And like her aunt would be like, as much as your dad spends on you, that's how much she loves you. Like money is no object. He loves you so much. That's why he spends so much money. So to be told, no, I'm not going to do this thing that we agreed to. And just, it's very upsetting. But I do think the fact that she was like $9,000, she literally acted like, yeah, if somebody had thrown $9,000 at me, no, I for her to be so fucking stumped by this amount of money that she had to split it with her husband's poor family is crazy to me okay i'll give you that because she also talks about at this period meron talks about how it was the golden years they would go into Saks fifth ave and spend 50k no problem yeah and then for her to have nine thousand dollars be an, an amount she cannot swallow i was like i don't understand that i get that so now they're married there's a huge rift between her and her mom she also has all these projects coming up finally she has pitched and landed a show that's a fictionalized version of her real life. It's called So Notorious. If you can't hear it in Ashley's voice, it's stylized that the word Tori, T-O-R-I, is capitalized in So Notorious. Exactly. So So Notorious has been picked up by VH1 as a 10-episode scripted sitcom, their first scripted series. They're trying the genre out and they even say to her so there was a bidding war at first between the wb upn and nbc nbc one then ends up not picking up the show so then she tries shopping it around again and upn and the wb are like you didn't pick us last time so no and then she ends up at vh1 Mm -hmm. who is trying scripted shows they tell her like hey listen we're trying something new so we're gonna nurture you more than a big network would and so you'll love it So she also has a TV movie that she's shooting in Ottawa during the pre-production of So Notorious. And she's in New York for some stuff before going to Ottawa. She decides that she has this evil hex upon her and she needs to visit a voodoo priestess that her friends told her about who lives in Brooklyn. She travels to Brooklyn 
all by herself. And there the voodoo priestess puts chicken blood all over her and stuff because she is so convinced that her mom, who now she also is convinced is dating Mark, she's like convinced that they put an evil hex on her and before Notorious can go on to the air, she needs it removed. It's not even like that they've put an evil hex on her. She thinks that there's been like an evil eye upon her her entire life and it's built by her mom basically and she needs to shed this evil. The woman's like, it's free, but it's a donation. And apparently she's very reputable. Her friend's like, I Googled her. She does seminars. She's like a real one. Yeah, a real voodoo priestess. She ends up spending $200 and it's like, okay, I guess now I'm cleansed. Speaking of $9,000 not being a lot of money, to pay $200 for a cleansing bath and then a positive bath where they re-cleanse you with positive voodoo. They killed a real ass chicken and spread the blood all over her. Oh, that's disgusting. But not cheap. Anyway, she gave $200 and she's like, I gave her $200 for a good work. And it like really illustrates again, Tori's lack of understanding about money. It's like, my God, dude, that is. That's a massage. Change. <laughs> you see it again later when she's having some real money troubles. I think she was like 200K in debt and her dad hands her 500 bucks. And it's like, this should get you through the problem. So then she goes straight to Ottawa, cleansed and anew to film this TV movie. The first day she meets her co-star, she calls him her leading man like three or four times people say do you want to meet your leading man your leading man's about to arrive if you want to have a little lunch with your leading man look over there a leading man <laughs> i also noticed how many times not only she referred to him as the leading man but other people would be like your leading man and i'm like is that how they talk up to you in tv movies so finally her leading man walks in the room and my god is she swept to hell yeah she literally is she thinks he's so hot they connect immediately the whole cast and crew goes out that night for drinks they talking the whole time they go home and they fuck that night <laughs> after all that resisting one lunch meeting and one dinner she just couldn't bear it anymore and she cheats on her husband of at that point i would say one year he comes out to visit the next day and meets dean dermot and he leaves to go back to la and the rest of the time, they're like secretly just like having a full blown affair for the rest of the shoot. So Dean has a wife and a son. Yes. And he, I guess he claims he was very unhappy in his marriage anyway. And she's all worried that this is just a thing he does on every set that he flirts with every leading lady, his leading ladies. And he's like, no, you're special to me. So they continue. They think it's a secret. They're falling in love. And then they decide when they get back home, they're going to leave their spices. Tori's like. I always knew I shouldn't be with Charlie. So no matter what, I had to leave him anyway. But she's like, I don't know if I believe that Dean will leave his wife. Yes. So Dean says for personal reasons that she says are not hers to share. He needs six months. And she's like, OK, I have to break with Charlie now. Whatever. So she goes home to like lies to Charlie. She's staying away from him as much as possible. She's going out with her friends. She's just like picking fights with him constantly. They haven't boned since they got back. She's trying to stay away from him. And three days afterwards, she gets a call from Dean who's in Palm Springs with his family. He goes, I can't take it. I'm coming home. I miss you. I just left her. So now she's still with Charlie. Charlie has no idea what's going on. And she's meeting up with Dean at hotels. And she's like going from hanging out with her friends to hotels with Dean and lying to Charlie about where she is. One night they're having this dinner with a bunch of their friends. And Charlie says, tonight when we get home, we have to fuck because this has been a really long time and it's like important for our relationship. And so then at the party her friends are like we're gonna go out dancing after this and she's like I'm gonna go out dancing too and Charlie's like what the fuck dude and she's like I'm going dancing <laughs> she's just being really uncool to him and then she ends up meeting up with Dean that night and eventually she has to schedule an appointment with her therapist mm -hmm. to break up with him so that she can do it in front of a person who's gonna guide her through the conversation she's too much of a pussy to do it by herself I felt like this is 
really uncool. <laughs> this was really fucked up. It's one thing if she had showed up and broken up with him the minute she landed, but the fact that she was like seeing Dean behind his back and everybody knew and she was taking Dean to meet her friends. This was too much. Tori. I also think the conversation that she relays between her, Charlie, and the therapist is pretty fucking sick yeah do you want to get into it one of the things she says is i didn't want kids with him i explained this to him and that i wasn't sexually attracted to him that's like really mean really mean he flies home to the east coast and she gets these texts from his family who she had loved so much and those are vicious too should i read those Sure. She goes, I never got to say a real goodbye to Charlie's family, the warm, welcoming family who I knew must hate me for wronging and hurting their son. Another young relative with whom I'd been close to wrote, all these years when people said Tori Spelling's a whore, I defended you. At least I don't have to anymore. And I understand that a wedding isn't right. And I understand sometimes there's an indiscretion. But when she was back in that house, sneaking away, lying to him in front of all of their friends who all knew the truth. I mean, that is like a lack of respect and a humiliation that is really fucked up. So she marries Dean. They run away to get married in Fiji. They get a cute little apartment because she has to move out. And so her mom is furious at this point. So she sends a text to her mom right before they're about to divorce and basically says, I have some life news. I'd like to talk to you. Her mom doesn't get back to her for a few days. And by the time her mom gets back to her, the news has broken. And so, of course, they've seen. She's also filming Notorious this whole time. And it's her mom's 60th birthday. And they, they rented out Il Cielo, which is a restaurant I hear about a lot in L.A., and Tori decides she just cannot go. She can't bear to publicly see all of her mom's friends who had just gone to her wedding and given gifts. She doesn't want to be out in public right now. She like knows that whatever she does will be twisted by the media. Not twisted, but skewered by the media. And so she apologizes to her mom for not going. And her mom writes back, everyone who cares about me came to celebrate my birthday. Point loud and clear. So when her mom bought her that apartment, they decided to make it fair she would pay rent and it's like at first she would pay a thousand dollars and her roommate would pay eight hundred dollars because she always had a roommate and then she said over the course of 10 years the rent kept going up and up until it was ultimately forty six hundred dollars the only time she knew was because her mom's business manager would be like your mother has decided for tax reasons that we must raise the rent which is like hilarious because i think this is like a 12 million dollar part yeah it was like the fanciest apartment in the fanciest building like her mom was just like pettily charging her money but so the second this happens she gets an email from her mom's business manager who goes for investment purposes, your mother has decided now is a good time to sell the apartment. You must be out by the end of March. Charlie is living there. She has moved into a little apartment with Dean. And she says she's happier than she's ever been. She says she loves living in a shitty little apartment. It also doesn't sound like a shitty little apartment. It sounds like a nice luxury building. With like a pool and stuff. Yeah. They go off to get married in Fiji. Just the two of them and some writers from and photographers from people magazine yeah they fly out four people so there's two of them no guests and then four people magazine photographers she tells her parents that she got married she sends them an email and like six days later she gets a response from her mom that's just like congratulations we're happy you're happy p.s we've decided to sell the apartment january 31st yeah so now she is newlywed she's still producing and filming and writing notorious yes and she has to like get all of her shit in storage and I don't know it's just a fucking mess I think the email the was sent like January 4th that she had the rest of the month when she's doing 17 hour TV shooting days to get all of her stuff that she had lived in an apartment for 10 years out of there yeah then her father passes away so she is pretty estranged from her family at this point she's not really talking to them she hates that Mark has moved in on her mom he's not living at the house but it's very clear they're having an affair. I guess the dad is so sick and never leaves his house. She won't even mention that Mark is downstairs having dinner with her. Tori is so mad. She's not talking to either of them. Her brother is like, look, dad's not doing good. He had a stroke. He's very sick. You have to go back. Tori had said at a party where there was press, I don't like the relationship my mom has with Mark. That got put in the tabloids. 
Yeah. And so when her dad has a stroke, she calls and the mom picks up and goes, hi, Tori, we're going through a lot right now. We cannot have it leaked to the press. And I guess her dad is like, I love you, but that's, she doesn't hear from him again. And so she doesn't go home and her brother is begging her to go visit. And she's like, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. I'm busy. Finally, her, her brother calls crying. is like, you need to come visit mom and Mark are in Vegas. She goes, she introduces him to Dean. They have this like one last moment. And then a few days later, she gets word that he died. Yes. She finds out through her publicist text her. It's four hours from first word that she hears from a member of her family. Then her brother and her mom put out a joint statement about how sad they are about his passing and she's left out. So now begins the tabloid wars. It was to a point where she didn't even know at the funeral. She didn't even know if she should be in the front row. And she says she did go to the funeral and she was so upset that Mark was there. And apparently it was like a rabbi who just like went on this long talk about how great Mark was when it's like Mark have been having an affair with the mother under their noses this whole time. Yeah. So she leaves. She runs that. She doesn't take about the family. They're hardly speaking. There's a lot of pain. And also at this time, of course, Notorious was based on her own life. It was like a scripted exaggeration of what her life is like. And it, it didn't paint her mom well. And her mom knew that and said, I would like to read all the scripts before you go to air. And she didn't even give her mom that. Anything. Yeah. So there's a lot of tension between them. They're barely speaking. I guess like every time something happens, anytime someone says something is put in the news as mean. Somebody does this whole profile on her where they basically pull every mean thing she said about her mom and put it up there when really said one word about it, but they left out a lot of it and made it seem like it was a hit piece on her mom. So meanwhile, Notorious goes to air. It gets great reviews. This is when she says that thing where like for the first time in my life, I got good reviews. If you don't count the other two times, which she doesn't count because just like everything else, nothing good ever happens to Tori spelling except for the good things, but it gets really bad ratings. They cancel it. They don't give it a second season. So then she gets pregnant. Then she and Dean were doing another TV movie where they'd fallen in love with B and B's. She'd never stayed at a bed and breakfast before in her life. And she thought bed and breakfast, this is amazing. So they sell a show to oxygen network called Tori and Dean in love. And it's a show where they buy and renovate a bed and breakfast. And then I don't know, they think that it's going to be a big moneymaker for them. I guess it, they truly had never heard of bed and breakfast. She gives birth and they use that to sort of mend the relationship with the mom temporarily. We didn't even get into the will. Oh yeah. So very important to know when her dad is sick and she's not really talking to him, one of his business associates is like, by the way, this guy Mark is moving in. If I were you, check on the will. And she's like, I don't really want to, but everybody was so insistent. So I said, Dad, can you check on the will? And he goes, yeah, I'll check it out. He comes back to the next lunch. He goes, so I checked on it. And don't worry, you and your brother are totally set up. You're each getting just under a million. You'll be set for life. And I guess Tori didn't say, hey, a million is like actually not that much these days in L.A. She just can't advocate for herself. She at that point was $200,000 in debt. Yeah. And I guess her dad knew and she talks about how her dad was like, don't worry, I'll set you up. And he goes, I'm going to give you some money to help you out and don't say no. And then he goes into his vault, comes out with $500. Yeah. And then he does leave her $800,000, which after estate taxes, she says, comes out to about half a million dollars, mm -hmm. which. And she says, she goes, I know it's a lot of money. It's definitely a lot. But when you're in debt and your dad's worth $500 million, it's hard to think that that's all you got. And she does kind of talk about how like she could have easily been set up to never ever work again a day in her life and she's like I think if he had understood what money does he would have wanted me to like be able to choose to work instead of having to like leave my family to take random appearance gigs and she's we weren't raised with this idea of like one day you'll be on your own she's like I think he thought he was taking care of me yeah but he had no idea what money was yeah. And I will say on the other hand, she talks a lot about never understanding what money was. And I do hope that since this time she has like taken time to learn the value of a dollar. I don't think she has. On one hand, sure, if you're raised in this way, 
it must be really fucking hard to like all of a sudden have to be like upper middle class. Well, I do think she talks about having no idea what money was. She goes, even when I was little, I always had a nanny. I always had a driver. Somebody else was always putting the bill. And so we would just walk into a store. And if you like something, you got 10 of them. Right. That's when she said the golden years of the $50,000 at SAC. The money she was making was not being put anywhere. But I'm just saying at a certain point, unfortunately, in my eyes, that excuse kind of runs out. Oh, no, I'm not (laughs) excusing her at all. Yeah. I'm saying at this point. At this point in her like 30s, she should have. When she realized she wasn't getting money from her dad and she was going to have to live off of her own keep she really had to take out the old excel yeah start balancing a budget and boy did she not so she gets pregnant she has this baby it seems like momentarily her and her mom are brought back together that's where the book ends with this yeah. baby a lot has happened since last i looked there's a there's a tax lien on her house and she's been sued by amex twice and she's written three other books three overall what do you think of tori spelling i think she gave us a really good memoir i don't think i like her i don't think i hate her I just think that this was a fun read and I'm glad we did it. I do think that I went in being like, oh, good for her recognizing how rich she was and how unnormal it is. I am starting to wonder, is it just too much to ask? You just cannot ask a person to honestly give themselves credit where credit is due and not credit where credit is due. Like, I'm like, maybe that's just too big an ask. Like, I think it's too big an ask. I don't think I would have liked her in real life because I don't like pushovers. I know you and me were debating how honest was she about her part? I do think she writes herself pretty bad. What she did to Charlie was horrific and she does not hold back on how bad she treated him. I think the Charlie part is the only part where she's like even, I don't think she's ever the bad guy, but I don't think she's like the perfect sweetie who's just like sitting in a corner. I don't think she's a perfect sweetie in the sitting in the corner getting in trouble. I think she writes herself as a pathetic little doormat who will follow anybody who will take her on. And because of that, she gets put in shitty situations because she has no backbone. And she has okay. no backbone because she was like bulldozed by her mom. Okay. In the end of the day, I would say... This book made me interested in Tori Spelling, which I wasn't before. All right. Well, Worms, we love you guys so much. Check out the Patreone. Oh, my God. Last week, we had Claire's mom come on and tell us a little bit about art history and how it relates to some of our memoirists. And then this week, we're going to go over Miss Americana, the Taylor Swift documentary. You know that we famously believe a self-produced documentary is as good as a memoir. So, And also, we're going to have a guest, Ellie McElvain, who is a hilarious comic in L.A. Love you. Love you.